Field, you're listening to the Dogs Programme. And this is our programme before the Christmas holidays. And we hope that all of those of you who have uh, taken the Christmas holidays from school and all of those of you who are thinking of having a happy holiday, that all of that comes to pass. We're still here to defend and promote public education. And for our press release 962 this afternoon, we've got some very interesting material from Tom Oren. And he has a very interesting view on the state aid questions. He thinks that churches are still abusing children. It's just that they're abusing the children in the public schools. It hasn't been a good week for public education. The Labor Party were very coy before the last election about what they were going to do for education and their coyness is continuing for at least another year, as you'll find out from Dale and Sorrell. And uh, over there at Monash University, Luke Beck has been writing very interesting material for Inside Story, Why Are There No Poor Children in the Legal Profession? And, of course, we've got Jeff, as always, telling us about what's going on over the ditch in America, and we have our great state school. So let's get on with the program, shall we? Oliver and Kim. Press release 962. What has Tom Oren got to say? Thank you, Jean. Tom Oren writes, what is abuse? According to Slater and Gordon's website, there is no legal definition, but there are certain elements associated with it. It can be either intentional or unintentional, an intentional or unintentional action or inaction that harms another person. Institutional abuse is where people in care, including school children, are mistreated due to an imbalance of power or when there is an expectation of trust which is not fulfilled. It can also involve taking advantage of a position of power to coerce others. And finally, there is financial abuse, when a person or group takes control of economic resources that belong to someone else and by doing so places them at a disadvantage. Churches and public school children. Jesus said, Love the little children, and that we should love our neighbours. In fact, he went even further and said that we should love our enemies. So why do churches that preach, love thy neighbour, on Sunday, seem to hate public school children from Monday to Friday? At least that's the way it looks. If their behaviour is anything to go by, if churches see public schools as an enemy that must be defeated, far from loving the children in them, they do anything in their power to deny them the best education possible. Otherwise, why would they keep lobbying for funding that ensures that public school students will always get less than students in religious schools. The reason is simple. Religious schools could not survive unless they had superior funding. So they insist on a system where their fees plus public subsidies will always be greater than what any public school can get. Without that extra funding, nobody in their right mind would pay for an education that they could get for free. How do churches justify this systematic inequality? The subsidization of religious schools is often justified on the grounds that it provides choice for parents, but that only applies to parents who can afford private school fees, so it's not a choice for everyone. Public school parents are even denied a choice of public schools. They have to use the schools to which their children are allocated. Moreover, free choice may not be all that it's cracked up to be. There's an economic parable that illustrates this. There's a football game where every spectator is happy to watch from their allocated seat. However, during a particularly exciting passage of play, the people in the front row choose to stand up and naturally, this blocks the view of those sitting behind them. As a result, those people also have to stand and when they do, they block the view of those behind them. This continues until everyone in the stadium has to stand, even though they would all be happier watching the game from their seats. In other words, sometimes the choice is made by a small number of people 
can have an adverse impact on a far larger group who are better off the way things were. The subsidisation of private schools in Australia creates just such a paradox. In the 1960s, the vast majority of Australians were happy to send their children to free public schools, while a minority chose to pay for their children to attend private schools. Then the churches started begging the government for modest funding to help cover the costs of toilet blocks and science labs. And once they got it, they realized they had some political muscle, especially in the Labour Party. So they started flexing it. No longer satisfied with a little help, they started demanding equal funding. And when they got that, they wanted more than equal funding. The Bible has a thing or two to say about wanting more than others. It's a cardinal sin called greed. We deserve more because we pay more. Some churches argue that their schools deserve more because their parents choose to pay fees. But should that mean that the only way to get a good education is to pay for it? Nobody mentions that when the churches first asked for help, if they had, I'm sure the public would have quickly gone cold on the idea. The extra funds available to private school students creates the perception that public schools are second rate, that the only way to ensure that your child gets a great education is to send them to a private school. Those who feel this way are forced to pay between 2000 and 30000 a year for a service that was once free, which would be like forcing people to pay to walk on footpaths, to visit parks, or to go to the beach. Because it's paid by choice, many people think that this is acceptable, but for many, it is no longer a choice. The fear that their children will miss out has forced them to pay for something that was previously free. In other words, those fees are a tax disguised as a fee. How did this come about? In the 1950s, a time when subsidizing private schools was frowned upon, a small number of struggling Catholic schools humbly asked for the government for some funding to help cover costs. But somehow, that modest funding for a small number of Catholic schools has grown into generous subsidization for every religious school in the country. Another analogy might put this into perspective. Imagine driving along and seeing someone who needs help. So you pull over and give them a lift. They're very grateful. But after a while, they start complaining about not having their own car. And a while later, they become aggressive about it. Then they get bolder and ask if they can drive your car. And to keep the peace, you agree. Soon after, they tell you that they have to go a long way past your destination and that they'll need your car for the day. You're not quite sure how it got to that stage, but by then, you don't have much of a choice, so you agree. Besides, they said they'd pick you up on the way home, so you let them go. That afternoon, you wait outside your workplace and give a wave when you see your car coming, but it drives straight past. Now it's you who has to hitch. Religious schools that once begged for limited funding are now demanding funding for luxuries. No longer are they asking for just a little help. Now they're demanding the best education that money can buy. Meanwhile, public school students have to make do with whatever they can get. And now Kim will take over. Thanks, Oliver. What about efficiency? Some people justify the subsidisation of private schools by pointing to other subsidised industries and asking, why not us too? But time and time again, Economists have proven that subsidies and their cousins' tariffs actually create inefficiency. Propping up inefficient businesses always ends up making consumers pay more, and private schools are no exception. It's beyond question that public schools are more efficient. It costs far less to educate a child in a public school than in a private school. So why are we subsidising a less efficient, i.e. more costly, education system? Wouldn't it be wiser to invest in the most efficient system? If so, there'd be far more money for everyone. By subsidising the less efficient system, we are literally throwing money away. 
were saving the government money. Advocates of private education often claim that it would cost more to educate everyone in the public system, but it always costs more to operate a dual system than a single system. To see why, imagine if every electricity retailer had to run their own set of power lines to every house. The single system offers greater opportunities to plan and to achieve economies of scale, while dual systems always result in duplication and waste. Subsidising private schools for a minority ends up costing everyone more. And let's talk costs. In 2022, New South Wales public schools received 87.4% of the schooling resource standards, while private schools received 106%, and they will continue to be overfunded until 2029. By then, $2 billion will have been diverted to private school students from those who really need it. The average cost of educating a child at a public high school is about $15,000 a year, but there would be very few and probably no private schools that could come close to that. Some are spending upwards of $20,000 or $30,000 per child per year, and even the poorest of them would be spending $1,000 or $2,000 more per child than a public school. If we extrapolate that extra cost across Australia, it would probably be enough to pay for the much-discussed blowout to the NDIS. But we pay taxes too. Another justification for subsidising private schools is that private school parents pay taxes, so they deserve some money to pay for their child's education. But there is no logic in subsidising private schools to have more than public schools, and nor is there a moral or ethical argument that can support it. Shouldn't churches that preach love your enemy insist that public school children get at least the same funding as their children? This could be achieved in two ways. Either public schools could be given extra funding to bring them up to the same level as religious schools, or religious schools could subsidise to a point where their total funding, fees plus subsidies, equals that of public schools. So if it costs $15,000 to educate a child in a public school, a private school with the fees of $3,000 should get no more than $12,000 per child. And schools with fees higher than $15,000 should get no subsidies whatsoever. Are churches really guilty of child abuse? Are public school students harmed because they cannot access the same level of funding as students in private schools? Yes. Do public school students suffer because there is an imbalance of power? Yes. Do churches have a duty of care to all children? Yes. Do churches act to ensure that all students have equal access to education funding? No. Do churches use their political power to gain a financial advantage for their schools? Yes. Do church schools take control of resources that place public schools at a disadvantage? Yes. All these elements demonstrate that churches are denying the children in public schools what they expect for the children in their schools. Far from loving them, it appears they couldn't care less. Does this constitute abuse? Figure that out for yourself. Back to you, Jean. Thomas certainly mounted a very interesting argument there, but we'll have a bit of a break. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual. Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. 
So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. We've been listening to how the churches are abusing children in public schools, but they're not the only ones. Trevor Cobalt from SOS has got out a very good press release on how Labor is betraying public schools and disadvantaged students. And the interesting thing is that it's been taken up almost in total by the Guardian newspaper. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article here from the Save Our Schools website. Labor betrays public schools and disadvantaged students. The public education advocacy group Save Our Schools today slammed the decision of the Labor government to delay the introduction of the next of the next National Schools Reform Agreement, the NSRA, until 2025. SOS National Convener Trevor Cobalt says that it is an act of betrayal of underfunded public schools and disadvantaged students. This is Labor perfidy at its worst. Labor is denying full funding of public schools indefinitely. The Minister for Education, Jason Clare, says that public schools are on a path to being fully funded. The truth is they are on a path to never, never land. Public schools are on the path of indefinite underfunding. Labor was silent during the election campaign about the future funding of public schools, and now we know why. It has no commitment to ensuring public schools are fully funded. Public schools across Australia are currently funded on average at 87.1% of their schooling resource standard, the SRS. Under the current NSRA, they will still be funded at less than 91% of their SRS by 2029. This is costing public schools about six billion dollars a year in funding. By contrast, private schools are currently funded on average at at least 104.3% of their SRS. They will be overfunded for the rest of the decade under the current arrangements. The latest NAPLAN results show shocking inequities. For example, 29% of low SES year nine students were below the reading standard. 38% were below the writing standard and 16% were below the numeracy standard. The results are even worse for Indigenous students. 33% of Year 9 Indigenous students were below the reading standard, 44% were below the writing standard and 19% were below the numeracy standard. By contrast, only 3% of Year 9 high SES students did not achieve the reading standard, 7% did not achieve the writing standard, and 2% did not achieve the numeracy standard. These inequalities are totally unacceptable. They have continued for far too long, and the Minister's announcement will ensure they continue. The inquiry announced by the Minister is a delaying tactic to shield the government from pressure to increase funding for public schools and disadvantaged students. There is already an ongoing inquiry on the NSRA by the Productivity Commission that's due to report by the end of the month. Why do we need another inquiry? Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Dale. So the Albanese government are running scared of the private school lobbyists, aren't they? But the Greens aren't scared. 
we're very fortunate that uh, the middle area of Australian politics has uh, quite a few people who are friends of public education and the Greens Party is in their battling. Uh, so they also had, had a very interesting press release on Labor's Christmas gift for underfunded public schools and Sol's going to give us that. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. So Labor's Christmas gift for underfunded public schools is a kick in the teeth. The Greens will explore options to remove the legislated 20% cap on the Commonwealth's contribution to public school funding after Labor announced on Friday that it would postpone the next National School Reform Agreement, the NSRA, by a year. The government's decision to kick action onto the public school funding crisis down the road comes despite recent data showing that the gulf between the richest and poorest students in Australia is widening. While public school parents are increasingly reaching into their own pockets to pay for building maintenance and basic education resources. The Greens spokesperson on schools, Senator Penny Alman Payne, had this to say. This is outrageous. Making public school kids wait another year for a fair go while continuing to pour public money into elite private schools that don't even need it is a complete abandonment of our most disadvantaged students and makes a mockery of the education minister's pretty words about equity. The new NSRA was an opportunity for the Commonwealth, states and territories to end this funding crisis and restore equity to the school system. Their unwillingness to prolong and further entrench disadvantage is evidence of a deep sickness at the heart of our politics. Ten years on from Gonski, public schools in Australia remain underfunded, while the private sector is overfunded. Under the current NSRA, public schools will never receive 100% of their schooling resource standard funding. Not in five years, not in 100 years. This decision will also heap further strain on an under-resourced teachers and schools and will worsen crippling teacher shortages. Instead of taking action, Minister Clare says they'll be forming a panel of eminent Australians to inform the next agreement. But we don't need another panel or another review or another study. We already know what needs to be done because Gonski did the work already. This government will have a fight on its hands in 2023. When Parliament returns, the Greens will look to amend the Australian education cap to remove the cap on Commonwealth funding of public schools, which prevents the federal government contributing more than 20% of the schooling resource standard. The Greens will use every lever at our disposal, inside and outside Parliament, to push Labor to deliver the funding teachers have been pleading for for a decade. The NSRA sets out the school funding arrangements between the Commonwealth and the states and territories. The current NSRA, which was due to expire at the end of 2023, locks in underfunding for government schools. Under the current agreement, public schools will have to wait until at least 2027 just to receive 95% of their schooling resource standard. Although the capital depreciation loophole will actually see that number closer to 91%, which is the bare minimum level of funding students require to achieve minimum achievement benchmarks. Back over to you, Jean. Oh, well, thank you very much, Sorrel. But we'll have a bit of a break now, shall we? 
all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year, your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, that was a nice break. Thank you, Dale. But now we've got something a little bit different because Sol's going to read us an article that is actually very close to her heart and her experience. We all know that uh, Australia is not a fair go place anymore, that in fact Russia and America are not the only places with oligarchs and elitists. We have it in Australia through the private school system and it is particularly obvious in the legal profession. A professor of law, Albert McMonish, Luke Beck, who's also friendly with the dogs and also an expert on Section 116, has written a very interesting article, Why Are There No Poor Kids in the Legal Profession? But over over to you, Sol, and you might like to tell our listeners why it is that this article is close to your heart and experience. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, so this article is actually very close to my heart and my reality as such, as um, one of these poor kids that are in law school. And I um, went to public school in primary school and high school, and now I am attending law school. And there are a lot of my peers that have a very uh, different background in the education and uh, socioeconomic background, for sure. So as Jean said, this is an article by Luke Beck. And you're not a lady of leisure, are you? Oh, no. (laughs) As we go into the article, one of the main things that he talks about is the money. And if you do a law degree, especially if you do a JD, if you do an undergrad law degree, it's different. But if you do a JD, you have to have done years of undergrad, a bachelor's. So by the time you get to the end of your JD, you actually run out of hex. So a lot of people, including myself, will actually run out of hex by the time we finish, which is a little bit insane because it's a one-path degree. Um, It's undergrad, bachelor's to postgrad JD. So it's a bit wild that um, I guess people who can't afford to pay out of their own pocket just run out of hex, can't do the degree. And you're working at the same time as studying. Yeah, definitely. That's the other thing. I think the actual course load is crazy. There's no way you'd be able to do full-time and have a job. 
full-time study load is a full-time job. So yeah, if you need to work to pay rent, if you have other responsibilities, you just can't do full-time study. You have to do part-time. And the thing with law degrees these days as well is it's not just about the study, it's about the extracurriculars. So trying to balance like a study load and extracurriculars and a job (laughs) is a lot of work. It's not very possible for um, students that don't come from a wealthy background. And that would be a very different position that your peers would find themselves in. The people you're studying with, do they have to work? There's definitely a range, but there are a lot of people that are my peers that are living at home with their parents I'm like that's really great that their parents can support them um, but they don't have to work which we all know that's going to give you a leg up if you don't have to spend any of your time not only just working but also being stressed about money and being stressed about how many hours you can take on at your job and will that affect your studies or Will your studies affect your job? And obviously, we all live in the real world where we have to pay our rent, or at least some of us do. We'll certainly be interested to hear what Luke Beck's got to say about it all. Yes. Um, I love also any of my lecturers that come from a working class background. There, shout out to them because they made it and they're doing it and they're doing great. So Luke Beck tells us that the legal profession and within that category, I include law students, practitioners and judges does not reflect the diversity of the broader Australian community. My theme is not gender or cultural diversity, although these are important issues, and as we know, they are often linked to class as well. Luke's theme is social class. In December 2020, the Law Society of New South Wales Journal published a short article titled, A Profession for the Wealthy, The Enduring Problem for Diversity in Law, which noted diversity has become the catch cry of law firms across the nation in recent years, but it seems little or no spotlight has been shone on socioeconomic or class-based discrimination, an issue that has ripple effects impacting all other types of diversity in law. Beck's own interest in this subject stems from his personal experience. He was a poor kid from the fringes of outer southwestern Sydney and went to a disadvantaged public school where almost no one went on to university. Some of the girls in his year had babies while at school and some of the boys had run-ins with the police. A couple of months ago, Justice Danji of the New South Wales Supreme Court gave an address at the Law Society of New South Wales Cultural Diversity Networking event in which he spoke about how class and socioeconomic privilege can intersect with and impact other kinds of diversity. He identified a number of key issues. A big one is cost. This includes being able to afford to pay or to incur the debt for fees for university, practical legal training, the bar practice course for those wanting to become barristers, as well as the financial ability to undertake unpaid internships and work experience. He adds from his own experience, the reality that cost is a barrier to full participation in law student life. He couldn't afford to pay for first year law camp and he couldn't afford the clothes to wear to the fancy black tie student functions. A less tangible but still very real issue is what Justice Danji calls privilege and a sense of belonging. 
He remarked that privilege also determines whether a person develops the aspiration to enter the legal profession and their sense of belonging within the profession. He referred to a 2020 British book, The Class Ceiling, Why It Pays to be Privileged, which shows that in the UK, children of lawyers are 17 times more likely to go into law than others. The Australian statistics are also pretty bad. Starting with the judiciary, it will not surprise you to learn that the Australian judiciary is not particularly diverse. No, it will not surprise anyone to learn that. In 2018, SBS Online published an article with the headline, 17% of New South Wales Supreme Court judges went to one exclusive Sydney private school. In the same year, Crikey reported, since Federation, 53 judges have served on the High Court of which just 12 completed their education at public schools. More than half that number, seven, attended Sydney Grammar School. We don't know much about the socioeconomic or class backgrounds of Australian lawyers because while statistics are collected about their age, gender and cultural backgrounds, no statistics are collected about their socioeconomic or class backgrounds. There is a saying, what gets measured gets managed. It apparently comes from a 1952 book by Peter Drucker called The Practice of Management. A variation of the saying is what gets measured matters. He believes diversity matters. Accordingly, Beck recently wrote to the New South Wales Law Society and the Victorian Legal Services Board, which both collect statistics on the demographics of practicing lawyers as part of their annual practicing certificate renewal processes. They have agreed to consider, so time will tell what actually happens, collecting data on the type of school, public, Catholic, or other non-government at which lawyers completed year 12. This is something the UK Solicitors Regulation Authority already does. That, of course, is an imperfect proxy measure of class or socioeconomic background, but but it is easy data to collect and will offer some useful insights. And it's certainly better than not looking at the issue at all. Looking finally to law students and in common with the rest of the profession, law schools educate a cohort that is overwhelmingly from high socioeconomic backgrounds. Using Australian Bureau of Statistics data and categories and Victorian Tertiary Admissions Centre student admissions data, Monash, like other universities, has detailed internal data about student demographics. At Monash, 70% of undergraduate law students attended non-government schools, whereas two-thirds of Australian students more broadly attended public schools. Only 7% of Monash undergraduate law students are from the lowest socioeconomic 20% bracket or court quintile. 57% are from the top 20% socioeconomic background. It's a worse situation with the Juris Doctor, than the graduate entry law degree. Only 6% of Monash JD students are from the lowest socioeconomic quintile, and 61% are from the top 20% socioeconomic bracket. Universities do not publish data like this publicly, so I don't have the precise statistics from other institutions. However, I have been able to confirm this state of affairs that the Australian law schools are predominantly a bastion of rich kids from non-government schools, looks like being the case nationwide. 
The New South Wales University's Admission Centre, which handles university admissions in New South Wales and the ACT, publishes aggregate data about the socioeconomic status of students entering degrees in broad subject areas. The published data is not broken down to the level of law degrees. Instead, law is lumped together into a broader humanities category, which is not particularly helpful for the present discussion. So, Beck contacted the data team at the UAC to ask if they would consider publishing data about the socioeconomic status of students entering various professional degrees, including law degrees. They agreed to put this on their to-do list. In the meantime, they contacted Beck via email and told him that the high socioeconomic status students are overrepresented in law degrees and economics degrees and that low socioeconomic status students are overrepresented in teaching and nursing degrees. Rich kids tend to study to enter high status professions and the poor kids who do go on to university tend to study and enter lower status professions perhaps supporting Justice Danji's point about privilege determining whether a person develops the aspiration to enter the legal profession. Of course, universities, including Beck's own, have special entry schemes for disadvantaged students. But on the whole, they're clearly making out only the smallest of dents in the problem. To conclude, there is a lot of work to do in ensuring that people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are able to enter the legal profession. Some of the issues are very complex and some, like educational disadvantage, require tackling from even before children start school. But one simple thing each of you can do is this. Next time someone talks to you about diversity in the law or in the workplace, ask if they have ever considered diversity in terms of a socioeconomic background. And if they haven't, or indeed if you haven't thought about that before, perhaps it is worthwhile reflecting on why not. And as we were saying, that is article is from Professor Luke Beck, who is the Associate Dean of Education of the Faculty of Law at Monash University here in Melbourne. Um, back over to you, Jean. Yes, and that was a speech that he gave on the 1st of December 2022. So uh, thank you very much, Sol. It was very interesting. Anybody who's been to law school becomes very well aware of what privilege and private school education is all about. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they are the best students. I don't know about you, but I have a vivid recollection of a tax lecture where all of the young, the young people from private schools were there to find out how they could help people avoid paying tax because there was such a lot of money in it. Anyway, uh, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll go over to America. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR Published or Not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR. Published or Not, every Thursday, 11.30 till noon. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, but we hope that you're enjoying our Christmas Eve program today. We're going to now go over to America with Jeff. 
Thanks, Jean. And again, this is this is a bit of a, a thing that's happening in Australia and in America, of course, is the culture wars, as we know. And this is from our wonderful Diana Ravitch's blog from December 18th, and it's titled Texas Battle Over Voucher Looms in Legislature. And Diane writes, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is determined to pass a voucher bill in the upcoming legislative session, along with voucher zealot Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. They hope to use the culture war nonsense about public schools indoctrinating students on race and gender issues. I pay no attention to the research showing that students who use vouchers are likely to lose ground academically and learn less than in a public school. Does the legislature really want to harm the state's public schools while sending kids off to religious and private schools where they're likely to get a worse education than in public schools? Edward McKinley of the Houston Chronicle wrote recently, private school vouchers were within a handful of votes of becoming Texas law in May 2005. Former Representative Castor Castile still remembers the constituent who confronted her in the office that day. He kind of threatened me, not to harm me, but that I wouldn't be re-elected if I didn't vote for the vouchers. Castile, a new Braunfels Republican, said in an interview, a public school teacher and school board member before she served in the legislature, Castile is and was a staunch opponent of private school vouchers. I explained to him my position and he wasn't very happy. I remember that she said. If you want your child to go to a private school, then that's your choice and you spend your money, but you don't take taxpayers' dollars away. Debate on the floor of the Texas House stretched on for hours and the voucher bill was gutted following a series of back and forth close votes. Castile voted no, saying publicly that she was willing to lose her House seat over it. In a dramatic capstone to the proceedings, Representative Sophronia Thompson ran across the floor and yanked the microphone out of the bill's bill author's hand, yelling for attention to a procedural mistake in the bill that led to its death. That day was the high watermark in efforts to pass private school vouchers in Texas. They have all been blocked by a powerful coalition of Democrats and rural rural Republicans in the House. In fact, the House has routinely and overwhelmingly supported a statement policy that outright bans taxpayer funds from going to private schools in sessions since. But advocates for vouchers believe that those legislative dynamics that have frozen for the last 17 years may finally be thawing. As Republicans for the past year have raised alarms over what they see as liberal indoctrination in the public school curriculum, especially in the way racism and LGBT issues are taught, they've chalked up victories in state houses across the country. Texas parents have carried that same fight to school board meetings, the local libraries and trustee elections, Now Governor Greg Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick are calling for more of the same in the upcoming legislative session with pledges to back parents matter initiatives that include another voucher push. Families started to see that there's another dimension to school, school quality that's arguably more important, which is whether the school's curriculum aligns with their values, says Corey DeAngelis, senior fellow with the American Federation for Children, which, with, which advocates for vouchers. And I think that sparked a wave of support for school choice around the country. Abbott, earlier this year, announced his support for a policy that would allow public funds to follow students, regardless of whether they attend public schools or private schools. Shortly after, DeAngelis posted a photo of himself in a meeting with the governor, and it's happening, Texas, has become a refrain on his popular Twitter account. With all the national momentum, I think a lot of people are looking forward to Texas as the next step, DeAngelis said. It's going to be all eyes on Texas coming up this session, and people are going to be watching. Eyes on Arizona, Virginia, 
The argument for vouchers has traditionally been that children, particularly in urban areas, are forced to attend struggling schools when the states could instead subsidise them attending private schools nearby. One problem with this argument is that polling has often found that while people have critical views of public schools generally, they often like their own public schools just fine. In the past, they've tried to get vouchers by saying, we've got to do something about kids trapped in failing schools. And so we'd say, we've got to we've got all these failing schools. And then you look at the data and you have about 80 campuses out of 8,500 or so that were improvement required categories. So you're looking at 1%, said Charles Luke, head of the Coalition for Public Schools, which represents education groups opposing voucher policies. So when you're talking about how horrible the public education school system is, 99% of them are doing fine, he said. A kid takes a test and he gets a 99 on it. You wouldn't say he's failing. I'm failing him, the system is failing him, you'd say he's doing great. But instead of school budgets or test scores, this time it's culture war issues with spin-offs that include whether teachings on racism damage the self-esteem of white kids and if it's okay for young children to see a drag show or discuss gender identity. There's this misalignment to what parents thought was going on in their schools and now their eyes have been opened. And now they say, hey, hey, let's fix this, said Mandy Drogan with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. No more of this social justice warrior, whatever the teacher or administrator feels about pushing into our classrooms. I think that's where you see so much momentum and everybody feels and sees that momentum. The issue of private school vouchers has historically hewn closely, closely to the culture war issues of the day. The modern voucher advocacy movement has roots connecting to efforts to resist racial integration after the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision in 1954. In the 1950s and 60s, supporters of vouchers wanted to leave government schools because they argued that such schools were experimenting with social engineering and radical, radical ideologies. Education historian John Hale has noted, particularly desegregation. The debates from yesterday over leaving public schools because of their values mirror contemporary political arguments over how L. LGBTQI issues are discussed, or the children who are undocumented immigrants attending American public schools. One question legislative observers have is whether those pushing vouchers will attempt to pass a universal program or more, a, lim a more limited one. Teacher unions, Democrats and other public school advocates have traditionally opposed any voucher system, no matter how small, but voucher advocates have seen success in other states, starting small and building out from there. This year, however, Arizona passed a universal program and advocates say that that should be the goal in Texas. Mays Middleton, who served in the House in 2019 and 21 sessions and was elected this year to the state Senate, has filed one such bill. His would create education savings accounts, a form of vouchers that could be used by anyone to send their kids to public school, private school, community college classes, virtual schools or homeschool. This approach is the best way to maximise parental empowerment, he said in a Friday interview and to capitalise on the momentum behind that movement that helped carry Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin to victory last year. There were also Republicans unseated in the primaries earlier this year across the state who were less supportive of voucher policies, Middleton said, which could help win additional support. He says his bill could be particularly helpful for rural Texans who want their kids to access more flexible hybrid homeschool models, as well as for people who want to send their kids to private Catholic schools but cannot afford it many of whom he said are Hispanic. Those are groups who would need to support voucher policies for them to win passage in the legislature. Look in Arizona, what they did it with one seat GOP 
majority in their House and Senate, Jan D'Angelis said. If every Republican in Arizona can show up for their platform issue, other red states should be able to follow as suit as well. Vouchers fell far short in 2021. Public school advocates and opponents of vouchers acknowledge that the fight is going to be tighter and more intense than it has been for many years, but they feel that even with intense lobbying and support, the policies will ultimately fall short. These are the same issues that raised their ugly head in past sessions, said Rep Representative Harold Dutton, a House Democrat who chaired the House Public Education Committee last session, noting that more than 100 of the 150 House members voted in favour of an amendment last year barring the state from spending public funds on private schools. I don't see that, change, that changing a whole lot and certainly not being able to get a majority. Members of the GOP's right wing have called for the House Speaker Dale Phelan to end the practice of naming Democrats to head a limited number of committees. Some have named Dutton in particular as an obstacle last session to, to school choice legislation. Dutton said he hadn't thought about whether or not he'll be chair again, but noted when vouchers failed before, the person in the chair of public education was a Republican. So what does that tell you? Several Republican members of public education, the, the committee, who might be in line for the chairmanship if Dutton is not selected again, have also expressed scepticism or opposition to voucher proposals. Representative Ken King from Canadian has said, if I have anything to say about it, it's dead on arrival. It's horrible for rural Texas. It's horrible for all of Texas. While Repub Representative Gary Van Dever says, this sense of community is what makes Texas great. And I would hate to see anything like a voucher program destroy this community spirit. As promised, after Castile's role in the demise of the voucher bill in 2005, she lost her seat in 2006. She noted that a prominent San Antonio businessman and GOP donor who was present in the House on the day of the vote and advocated strongly for vouchers donated more than $1 million to her opponent, as did the donor for other Republicans who opposed the voucher bill that day. I've got a great family, I've got a great law profession, and whether I'm there or, or I go home, it doesn't make a big difference to me. I don't go there to do nothing but what's right, Castile said. And it, I did. I went home and I never came back up until this year. Okay, that's a really good article. Uh, and there's another one um, from the same date, December 18th, from Diana Ravitch, and it's called The Schools That Indoctrinate Students. And she writes... The claim that public schools indoctrinate their students is an integral part of the right-wing attack on public schools. This is a canard, a bald-faced lie. The right-wingers insist that any efforts to teach tolerance and acceptance of others is indoctrination. Teaching children the importance of justice, they say, is woke. This is the mission of public schools, to teach children academic skills and knowledge, of course, but also to teach them to work with people who are different from them and their family. Teaching children to live, work and play with others and to respect others is important to the functioning of our democracy. We are a people of many diverse origins, different nationalities, different religions. One of the implicit fu functions of public schools is to help bind us together as one nation, one people who, who share civic values. Do you know which schools truly indoctrinate students? Religious schools. That is the one of the essential goals of religious schools. They teach the doctrines of their faith. That is why they exist. Yet, driven by religious zealots, red states are draining public money from public schools for religious schools. The latest movement is to allow religious schools to become charter schools, enabling them to access to public funds for teaching their doctrine. Politico wrote, 
Politico is a, uh, a, a political blog. Uh, Church versus state. Oklahoma's departing attorney general just took a big step forward towards achieving a conservative education milestone. A state law that blocks religious institutions and private sectarian schools from public charter school programs is likely unconstitutional and should not be enforced, Attorney General John O'Connor and Solicitor General Zach West wrote in a non-binding legal opinion this month. Their 15-page memo leads on a trio of recent US Supreme Court decisions that favoured religious schools and won rapt attention from conservative school choice advocates and faith groups. Oklahoma Republican Governor Kevin Stitt said the advisory opinion rightfully defends parents' education, freedom and religious liberty in Oklahoma. Newly elected state superintendent Ryan Walters called it the right decision for Oklahomans. The policy implications are huge because this is the first state that is going to allow religious charter schools, said Nicole uh, Stell Garnett, a University of Notre Dame law professor and influential religious charter school supporter who wants other states to follow Oklahoma's lead. The legal implications are huge because this is the first state that says that they have to, that they have to, she told Weekly Education. Now it's time to see if faith-based Oklahoma institutions successfully apply for taxpayer support to create charter schools that teach religion as a doctrinal faith, just a truth, just like private schools do today, and if legislatures will push, push to change state law. Also, watch if legal authorities in other Republican-led states pen similar opinions. Those looming decisions and court fights will set the stage for renewed constitutional debates about the line between church and state. Make no mistake, the bogus claims that public schools indoctrinate students is being used to advance the public funding of religious schools whose very mission is indoctrination. It's like Newspeak. This is the end, this is, that's the end of the article. But it is like Newspeak where they say they accuse their opponents of exactly what they're doing themselves. It's almost like a, a, a Ministry of Information stuff. Anyway, back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Jeff, and uh, the time has come for our great state school. But before we do it, we'd like to tell you that this is not the last program for the year. Uh, the dogs don't go to sleep on the, on the job. Uh, it's only the last program before Christmas because next week you will have a very special program because we're going to go back and tell you about our great state schools for the year. Over to you, Dale. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school of the week is Horsham College. I'm going to start by reading a little bit from an article that came out a week ago about Horsham College inspiring more students to get active through Move It Mondays program. Everywhere is within walking distance if you have the time, American comedian Stephen Wright once noted in his deadpan way. But of course, not everyone has the time, especially if they need to get to work or school. Even if they do have the time, many people choose their bikes or cars over walking, unless there is an incentive. It was this thinking that informed a pilot program in Victoria's West where, for the past two months, 
year seven and eight students at Horsham College had been earning points for their house every time they walked or rode to school. The winning house will be presented with a commemorative shield. Uh, year eight students Pippa Denham and Daniel, Danielle Granger said they noticed an immediate change in their classmates when the Move It Monday program began. I do think about sometimes how much pollution we put in the world and it is a great motive to ride to school, Pippa said. Already a keen cyclist before the program, Pippa said she had definitely seen a lot more bikes and scooters at school in the sheds. A lot more people ride throughout the week now, so it was a great motive to start kids riding and walking on a Monday, she said. Living rurally, Danielle now takes the bus to school, then cycles to her mum, her mother's work after school. I think I could keep this do, keep doing this definitely into the next year, she said. Definitely traffic and weather does stop me, though. Move It Monday is part of an active travel for climate action program co-designed with Horsham College students in partnership with Cancer Council Victoria, Grampians Health and Monash University. So they found that uh, the number of students riding or walking to school would increase with incentives and awareness of the environmental benefits. Hawthorne College Health and Phys Ed Coordinator Rod Kirkwood said the school acted on the findings by creating electronic tags for students, which were scanned when students arrived at school to document their mode of transport. The beauty of this program is that the kids have come up with these ideas. That's what's been unique about it. It isn't us just saying this is how it'll work. They said, we want house points and we'd love a shield at the end of the year. It's a good example of the student voice coming through. So good on you, Horsham College. A little bit more about Horsham College. It's, it services a student population of over a thousand students in years seven to 12. And it's the only government secondary school provider in the city of Horsham and surrounding areas. Horsham College is centrally located in the Wimmera and nestled next to the Grampians National Park and Mount Aripolis. The students come from a number of local and smaller rural primary schools in the district and are from diverse backgrounds. Students participate in a range of community activities and are encouraged to establish community connections. Horsham College is proud of a strong academic achievement born of high expectations and a focus on learning, which is a central tenet to the school's values of care, commitment, collaboration and character. And now some facts and figures from the ACARA My School website. The enrolment there is 1,000 on the nose. Its ICSIA value is well below average at 983, with uh, 7% of students coming from the highest parental income quartile, 20% coming from the second level of parental income, 32% uh, are from the third income quartile or lower middle class, and 41% are from the poorest families. So really a school with many disadvantaged students with 6% speaking languages other than English and 4% Indigenous students. Finances, recurrent grants from the Australian Government are 3.1 million, Victorian Government 12.73, fees and parental contributions 212,000 and other private contributions 540,000. So per pupil it's around $17,400 a, a year which is uh, pretty much on the right on the, the Gonski recommendation for what it should take to get a gold standard for a regional school. Um, but the results are 
are great. Uh, it's above average in NAPLAN and 114 out of the 115 uh seniors received their senior secondary certificate. So congratulations, Horsham. You're our school for the week this week on the DOGS program. Well, our time is gone, I think. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed the program. We hope that you will have a look at our website at www.adogs.info. And we hope that you'll be back with us at the same time next week. But from all of us at the DOGS program, It's bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.